Welcome to the State of the Markets podcast, episode 40. I'm Paul Rodriguez of thinktrading.com, joined with Tim Price of pricevaluepartners.com. And our very special guest this week is David Bell of Valbury Capital. Welcome, gentlemen. Morning, mate. How's it going? Good morning. Good morning. Yeah, all very good. Very good. We're very pleased to have you on the show. David, you're a new guest, so please introduce yourself. Tell us a bit about yourself. Um, I am 25, so I'm a baby in the finance industry. Um, I have been a trader for about five, six, how many years now? Yeah, five or six years. Have you heard um, of a bear market before? Do you know anything about those? <laughs> no, literally, what is that? <laughs> right. Actually, no. I, I guess uh, I guess if you're if you're talking about Bitcoin, then absolutely. But um, <laughs> I, I don't know if I don't know if that's a real bear market or just a pure implosion of a uh, of a of a of a bubble. You know. Yeah. Um, David, was, David, there was once a time when you could earn interest on your cash deposits. What's Imagine interest? that. <laughs> No, exactly. It's, uh, it's 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 a bit. It's, it's actually quite scary that um, you know, people of my age have, haven't really seen interest before. You know, it's yeah. it's it's crazy. It's crazy. But um, yeah, I was a trader, and now I've moved back into broken. Um, so um, you know, I work with uh, Valbury Capital. I'm a I'm a broker there, and um, yeah, it's all going it's all going great. I'm enjoying being back in the city actually. So as a broker, you uh, also are. Uh, your discipline is what technicals, economics. What what's your focus? Um, really, I don't think you can be a trader without being, or uh, or even a broker without having a, a three sixty degree view on the market in different disciplines. Because obviously, your clients are going to be looking at different um, different aspects of the market in different ways. Um, for me, really though, I look uh, specifically at changes in risk and. Um, and uh, the positioning of specific market participants. So, for example, um, I might look at Aussie Yen, which is one of my favorite pairs to trade um, because the risk changes really, really quickly on that and then combine that with how people are positioned on gold or Swiss franc or, you know, um, whichever other risk currency there might be and then start to form a picture as to which way I think different assets are going to move based on correlations as well. Um, so, yeah, that's a very interesting pair to, to talk about because um, for, for, I do a similar thing myself looking at intermarket analysis. So the reason why Aussie Yen, just for the benefit of the listeners, may be an offbeat currency pair, but but a useful one is because the Australian dollar is considered to be a risk-on currency. In other words, people invest in it when they want to take risk and the Yen is a risk-off currency. And traditionally the interest rate differentials between the two made it so that if the yen was strengthening it was really down to people taking risk off the table um and the yen is a funding currency or was a funding currency in other words you could borrow in japanese yen very cheaply and invest in the australian stock market or in the australian currency and and pick up an interest rate differential between the two so when when risk comes off the table, it moves very, very quickly. So it's a very important pair to watch. So that, that that's interesting. So you, you presumably you've got a short term focus. Whatever, if you could define that as well. Um, I actually I, I tend to trade around a longer term thematic um, view. So, right. for example, at the start of the year, I said that um, I was expecting China to slow down slightly. Um, and I didn't really have much basis of a fundamental view on on the yen um, 
as, as much as I did on, on the Aussie, but because obviously um, Australia is China's biggest training partner, one of, um, in terms of concrete, um, you know, metals, that kind of thing. Um, and I just thought to myself, yeah, I can see China slowing down aggregate demand, falling off slightly. I don't think Australia is going to export as much to, to China. Mm. Um, so then I started to look for, you know, a technical basis after that. And then I've been short pretty much the whole year. Um, but I've also traded, you know, inch a week around that as well, whenever I've seen opportunities that I can kind of leverage up into and, uh, yeah, trade it, trade it um, to make short term profits as well. Yeah, and then obviously, quite. I've, I've had a I've had a larger failure rate on these short term ones though. But um, yeah, it seems to be quite a nice long term position trade. Sometimes the hardest thing to do is to sit on your hands, isn't it? Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, and, um, and yeah. So there's been some very big moves in the metals. Uh, they've literally just all collapsed, and we've seen a very strong move downwards in the Chinese stock market. And it's just one of the many pictures that. are that we're seeing across the markets that are pointing to a broader bear market, but you wouldn't notice it if you were looking at the US because it's just continuing to, to power higher with all these FANG stocks, which is quite amazing how well they're doing given how everything else is turning over from the UK to Italy to, to Spain to even the DAX now is, is ready to turn down. And it's, um, it's, it seems to be the last man standing. Yeah, I think in my view, what's happened with the US stock market um, is that um, if you look at the smart money index, you know, that's, that's collapsed totally. Um, but what we're seeing is a is a movement from emerging markets into the US uh, stock market. That's what I think is happening. Um, and that's why we're seeing this fight, this, you know, this, this gradual melt up still. Um, because, you know, even the Fed is removing their balance sheet and we're not seeing much relief on it. I think um, earlier in the start of the year, when you know we saw that uh, we saw that kind of small blow off, we were testing the metal of the buyers. Um, but I think now, as the Fed deliquefies, we will start seeing more fractures and we'll see it start to flatten out and then curve over. But um, we'll we'll see about that. But um, yeah. it's not happened yet. It's affected the emerging markets, but not so much domestically. Towards the end of these um, podcasts, we normally talk about media picks and and so forth and one to, to try and get a, a slightly ahead of that game what i wanted to discuss one thing i wanted to highlight was one of the more interesting pieces i saw in the press during the week it's from the ft so it's the the financial times is a publication i have a hate hate relationship with <laughs> um but it but there are, i would i would i would acknowledge that they have a few um columnists who, who i think do deliver value who are who are good one of those being john authors now, there was a really interesting piece. It's called In a Crisis, Sometimes You Don't Tell the Whole Story. As everybody knows, uh, we've, you know, everyone's been, been talking about the 10-year anniversary of the failure of Lehman, which is today, effectively. Oh, right. And, mm. and there's the, the piece by John Authors, um, what I thought was, it was quite honest, really. What, what, in this piece, he effectively says, he, I think his circumstances where he must have moved from London over to, uh, to New York, and I think he sold a London property in the process. So he actually had quite a sizable amount in his account at, I think it was uh, Citigroup. And he could tell, he could, he could identify that there were, there were real problems in the market. So he went to, 
he went to basically his bank, his the Manhattan branch of his bank at City at Citibank, um, and he was concerned to basically that that he, he was going to lose this sizable amount. So he went to the he went to the bank branch, found a, a quite a, a sympathetic teller, and she said, oh, are, "Are you married? Do you have children?" And then she opened a basically a, a joint account for him and his wife, and also trust accounts for the kids so that he could quadruple his deposit insurance. Wow. Now, that's that's part of the story, but it gets better because then he says he was surrounded by wealthy Wall Street bankers who were all doing exactly the same thing. <laughs> and so he, so he, then, he, he then raises the question. He then says, uh, should we have, A, written this story, and B, taken photos of all these people queuing, basically in a sort of somewhat orderly bank run, and he he, ele- he he came to the conclusion that it was best not to basically pour fuel on a on a on an open fire, mm-hmm. and he's also been excoriated for this. So that basically, the, what people need to appreciate is there are two. There are actually two financial times is out there. One one is in a parallel universe. So, so there's the hard <laughs> there's a hard copy FT, which is the one you get in the post, um, and that's that sort of speaking wisdom to the the masses. And then there's the online version, which has, in many articles, you then, if you're a subscriber, if you're a paid subscriber, or a paying subscriber, I should say, you then get to comment below the line on the articles. And the online FT is 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 by far the more interesting of the two, because then you get to see what the, the, the what the readers actually think. And this piece, I mean, it's it's a fascinating one because it gets to the heart of what is the role of the financial media. During or before and during a crash, and and his his argument was effectively it would have been inappropriate to have basically publicised this bank run, and yet you know you then think about people like Robert Peston, who were perfectly happy to blurt on national television that Northern Rock had sought emergency uh, funding from the Bank of England, and that triggered a bank run. So I, I find the whole role of the media in this utterly fascinating and also, you know, a little bit scary. That's a very good point, Tim. It's, it's interesting to, to put it in those terms. I mean, when you were saying a bank run, though, they weren't actually withdrawing their money, which would have been a bank well, run. They, well, they, well, yeah, but I think that's, that's cutting, you know, that, that's a very fine point. That's sort of debating how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. If you're, <laughs> if, if you're, if you're trying to secure your deposits in, in such a way that you know you, you're getting basically multiple times insurance coverage that's a bank run in my money um it, you may not be taking it out but all you're effectively doing is you, you're circling the wagons so it, it's, it's just a variation on a theme surely um mm. yeah i don't know I, I i'd argue that it's it's actually just trying to transfer the risk and to to get insurance if you like i mean exactly what it is it's 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 just trying to i mean in any case i think Possibly at the time, it was only fifty thousand that was covered. So there's a, a limit to how much you could get covered that way, and you, you never really know if if the whole system had gone down, what really what would have happened? Would they would would they have been able to meet those demands? Would there be a special sort of situation where it's it's like an act of God and they say no, we because every bank's gone down, we can't cover this. I mean, who really knows? I guess we can't. We these could are deba- these are these are existential issues. They that, are. That- I think that that haven't been haven't been sort of you know, properly properly argued out. It, it, I mentioned uh, John Authors. The other person I would mention in dispatches 
is there's a piece in today's or this weekend's FT by Meryn Somerset Webb, who's the editor in chief of Money Week. And this is titled A Post Crisis Cure That Has Stored Up Economic Pain. And uh, I would give credit to Meryn on, on, on this article because the way I would describe it is nearly everybody that writes for the FT as, as an economics correspondent or columnist is basically Keynesian or neo-Keynesian. And they all basically advocated, yeah, we need the bailouts, we need the QE, we need the ZERP. And Merrin just raises the the alternative question, what if the system had, had what if they'd basically let banks fail or, 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 or not been as aggressive in supporting the system in 2008? And of course, we'll never know because there's no counterfactual, but it's a very interesting question. Well, we, you never know. We may be closer to that than we we think i mean perhaps. yeah it, they haven't necessarily solved the problem they've just delayed the problem with a i mean david would you would you own up to having any kind of uh, special sympathies when it comes to you know the school the varying schools of economics um i'd say i'm uh, you know probably closest to the australian australian school <laughs> the uh the Your obsession with china is really getting ahead of you david yeah no exactly um i'd say i'm pretty close to the austrian school but um you know i, I think that uh, qe is possibly one of the 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 biggest cons of the 21st century, the 20th century, any century that you want to go through. Um, I think that the way that they've kept interest rates low should be a crime and they should all go to jail for it personally. Um, but also the other thing as well is that um, if you look at Basel III, um, which is you know the framework for liquidity that was set up for global banks, um, they, they, they were meant to increase the, the, the tier one capital ratios. Um, and it's kind of conned everyone again because they've allowed banks to internally risk weight their assets, which means that, you know, um, they've they've gone into lower risk assets, apparently, like mortgages, um, and they've lowered the lowered the risk weights. So really, they haven't changed any um, they haven't changed any capital ratio at all. So we're, back, so we're still we're so still in the same situation as 2008. So effectively, what we're saying is the banks have been enabled to to mark their own homework. Yeah, pretty much. And um, it's, it's, it's so funny because uh, really the, uh, the risk weightings that they have could differ from one bank to the next, you know, depending on what assets they actually hold. So, uh, you know, they haven't done anything differently. And this is why with all of this junk stuff now that we've got on, on the books and uh, the derivative books and that, and because they're so large, you know, no one's going to know what, <laughs> what the price of any asset is. When it comes to it, it's going to be a massive repricing of risk and um, it's going to hurt really, really bad again, especially since, you know, they've kind of gamed it again. Yeah, I guess there was there was I see it like a big poker game with the markets and they 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 just can't back out and they're just raising the stakes until they've just been they've been doubling down for 10 years. Exactly. And uh, at some point, the market starts to lose faith. And that happens with the bond markets, which is which have turned. And starting to, to, you know, broadly, all the what you'd consider to be relatively inverted commas safe bond markets are turning down. Um, so the market will push up interest rates itself, whether they are raised by the Fed and, and the Bank of England, etc. Uh, whether they actually raise short term interest rates in some ways is irrelevant because mortgages are priced off longer term money. And that's priced off the bond market and the bond markets are falling. So... It's um, it's a very such a an amazing situation, and I, I guess looking looking back at the time um, to go back to what Tim was saying about 
should they have reported on it? Um, would you have added fuel to the fire? I guess, I guess actually all that happened, all that would happen is things would just accelerate forward. Yeah. I also think that um, people are, are less sensitive to it these days as well, because um, I think in 2008, I don't think you had, you know, news at the touch of a touch of a button in your hand. Um, you didn't get notifications all the time. You didn't have websites like Zero Hedge that were just pumping, you know, <laughs> bear market stories at you consistently. Um, so Twitter, I think Twitter, Twitter probably wasn't as prevalent back then either. There you go, exactly. Um, so I think I think people, you know, um, which which could actually be a good thing in terms of um, a bank run not occurring because people aren't as sensitive to it or, you know, they could just make it happen even quicker because they they have it um, they have it at their disposal easier. I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I was just using um, an old brick phone or burner phone as they, they're otherwise known. Just trying to get on the internet or do anything with it was just so funny. It was just so, it was like really looking at the dark ages, looking at this phone. And I know we've just had the release of the uh, the latest iPhone, whatever it is, the iPhone XSM maximum, whatever version it is now, which is getting. All, I think all of that's getting out of hand at the other end of the spectrum. But it's it was you're absolutely right that the the news flow. Actually, if we take a step back and go back to 1992 when we had the, the crisis of Sterling, it was just amazing that the then I think it was was it Norman Lamont and the Bank yeah, of it yeah it was Norman Lamont. And the Bank of England were getting updates on sterling via the taxi driver's radio. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was just, you couldn't make it up. I mean, if you go back and, and hear about how they were managing the crisis, they literally didn't even have, in the old day. well, in, when I was a trader in the late 90s, I got, we had those old uh, pages and those pages would give you up-to-date real-time currency rates and it was just amazing to have this technology um <laughs> and it was uh, very expensive as well but it was just like amazing but we couldn't but i couldn't believe that this is this was not in the hands of the people who are making decisions so so it's very funny i mean perhaps now we've got too much information and that's why maybe people are slightly deadened to it and uh as you well, say I think, it's a I, think, point. I think that's the biggest the biggest challenge for anybody in i would call it investment David might call it trading, that it, it, I, I'm trying to think of the precise phrase, but someone, I think it was a hedge fund guy, uh, made the point a few months back that in a previous era, say, you know, 80s, 90, early 90s even, it was all about having access to the best um, sources of information, the best funnels of information. Now it's about having the best filters of information. Yes. In other words, we've gone from information being a scarce resource to the fact that we're now all drowning in the stuff. That's a very yeah. good point. Yeah, I, I see a lot of information sources as filters, but it's it's it is interesting that that's becoming a term that people are starting to use. I always thought that's the problem with all media in the sense that you are getting information filtered. You never really know what is important because the news of the day in, in any newspaper has been filtered out for what people think you should know rather than perhaps what is important. Maybe maybe Aussie Yen's moving aggressively and giving you a signal, but nobody's talking about that because there's something else going on. Yeah, it's funny. It's funny you talk about filtering there, actually, because um, whenever um, people talk about learning how to, how to trade, for example, I always say take in everything and then test and see what works and, you know, what, what is true, basically, then, if you want to translate that into a media context. Um, because I think that if you just disregard things 
um, more often than not, you don't actually um, allow yourself to develop a view of uh, being able to discern basically what's bullshit and what is actually okay going forward, you know. Um, And eventually you start to, especially with trading, um, you start to pick up things when someone tells you something, you know, "Ah, no, you're talking rubbish there or, oh, no, this person knows what they're actually talking about or seems to know what they're talking about. And then you can go down that path and actually see if they do know what they're talking about a little bit more. Um, but it's, I think it's the same with media. I mean, I've, I've fallen really out of love with um, the FT of uh, the same as Tim, um, probably um, over the last few years since I've heard that Lionel Barber got his uh, medal of... Uh, Légion, of Légion d'honneur. What's it called? That's the one. Légion, Légion d'honneur. He got services his... to the great European project. <laughs> what, what, what did he get? He got a, he got a dollar, did he? What was so the Legion of Honor? Oh, yeah, right. yeah, okay. France. All oh, right. For, uh, he, good... he tweeted he tweeted about it very very briefly, and then immediately deleted the tweet. But it, it got out. Yeah, um, for for his uh, services towards the uh, EU debate, um, which is quite funny for a oh, British God. financial financial uh, publication, um, <clears throat> and even the Economist. You know, I don't like the Economist anymore. I feel that um, it's, it's the EU economist, David. <laughs> well, yeah, th- this is the thing: is is that it's the EU e- EU communist. <laughs> yeah. um, it's it's that uh, I I just don't like um, the sheer bias of many of the publications. I don't mind. I literally I do not care about reading about pro EU stuff or whatever. But when it's consistently the same thing, and you're expecting you know different points of view. Um, especially from something like The Economist. Well, you, um, you can always it, rely it on Mark. Boring. Well, at least Mark Carney's independent, isn't he? I mean, so there's no need to oh, worry Christ. about that. Well, the good, news, the good news, at least we have an independent BBC. So I'm <laughs> delighted. I'm, I'm delighted to announce that our petition, our petition to revoke the BBC's royal charter has now broken through the 10,000 signature mark, which means that the government owes us a response. Now, it's going to be a fob-off response, clearly, but nevertheless, I, I, I feel like response. it's something of a, a moral victory. Yeah, definitely. You've, you've, uh, you've been on that one for a long time, haven't you? <laughs> just a month. It might seem longer. What I find fascinating about this is I, I wonder uh, to what extent, I mean, I think probably all three of us are disenchanted with the media to a greater or lesser extent. I mean, that, that's abundantly clear. But I wonder it, whether you can link that dis, dis, dissatisfaction directly back to the, the global financial crisis. But the thing is, either, however it started, wherever it started, it, it is now becoming you know, an event that everyone can see. That The example I'd cite from this weekend, um, you must have seen this on Twitter. There's a, there's a clip from the Weather Channel in the States where you've got a reporter who's struggling manfully to, 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 to stay upright while he's holding his microphone. In, against the uh, against the wind, and then just in the background, two two blokes in shorts just jog past him. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, I saw that. Absolutely hilarious. Oh, brilliant! Oh, we'll have to get that. Um, we'll have to get a link for the listeners and put it on the no, post- podcast notes. I think. Um, I think you, you definitely any, you can't trust anybody. Yeah. No. No. Exactly. And I, I, but I think you can link it definitely back to the financial crisis as a as a more general theme because um, it, it's almost like we've been in one long decade-long hangover yeah. where, you know, um, the, the feelings towards banks, the um, economic effects of 2008 and the, the, the economic effects of the policies following have almost just caused, you know, just a kind of baseline that's just totally horizontal for people. Um, you know, housing prices are 
through the roof. People can't really afford to buy in London. Um, I know I certainly can't. Um, and it's just, you know, it, it just seems to be one long follow on from 2008. Before that, things were going quite well. And then, uh, yeah, that happened and people still have the same feelings. They're feeling the same thing now as they are as they were 10 years ago in terms of their pocket, you know. So I definitely think that things can be linked back. And, of course, media has a massive say in that because that's where most people get their economic news from, you know. So, um, yeah, most definitely is still, is still, um, is still uh, you know, the, the main link towards, um, towards media now and media then. Well, what you, what you were saying, David, uh, is is an interesting point about taking on all information, but then then you end up filtering things out, and that that's again something that I've always said to people who are learning about the financial markets in a similar way. Just look at media with your eyes open. Don't don't just assume because somebody's on Bloomberg Television or the BBC News or whatever it is that 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 they know more than you or are or views are better than yours. You just look at what they're saying. I mean, if, if somebody is from, you know, coming on from a certain company, you know, let's say they're talking from the Gold Council, they're very likely to be talking about gold going up, aren't they? So they're going to have a bias. But after a while, you learn that, and I, I'm sure that if anybody just does this each day, they will, because I used to do this, I used to follow the news um when I first started my career in the early 90s, I used to write down what the media was saying about certain stocks. And I found that um, from week to week, they might say Glaxo stock rises because of new drug. And then they, you know, so it would go up 20p or something. Then next week, they'd say Glaxo stock falls 50p because of new drug. And it would be exactly the same story that they would use as an excuse for why it's gone up and why it's gone down. And so in the end, I realised that actually this isn't helping me at all. This is just distracting me from the bigger picture. And I may as well find another source of information. So someone else's interpretation of what the markets are doing is very it can be very inconsistent. You're never going to learn from that. But there are certain people out there, um, you're, you're quite right, who are very much worth listening to. I mean, of course, there's Warren Buffett is always very interesting to listen to, and you can learn from from what he's done. Um, you can. Le- I certainly learn, and I've always thought the main person to listen to is over everyone else is George Soros. George Soros and Jim Rogers are the two. Um, main people I will always sit up and listen to when they're saying something. Um, because generally speaking, over time, they, they've they been successful, they've been right, they have no other agenda other than being market-focused. And they, they're they not necessarily saying things just for the sake of it. And so um, because they trade any markets, um, they're not stuck to one particular sector that uh, they will just say what they think. They have no no sort of underlying bias. So there, there are people and there are sort of sources that are worth listening to. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree there. Um, this is, <coughs> excuse me, this is why I also take quite a, um, you know, uh, um, a positioning approach as well in terms of looking at where people are, are positioned in terms of non-commercials, commercials, leverage funds, that kind of thing, because that gives you the true picture. And you can see through, um, you can kind of see through who is on the right side of the market in some senses, because if you look at the extreme position in Earth Swiss Frank currently, for example, that's at the, the largest net short since 2008. If you look at uh, the US 10-year Treasury bond, that's at the largest net short 
ever. David, sorry, sorry to interrupt. For the benefit of listeners who, who might be trading inclined, where can they where can they get access to that kind of information? Um, I mean, Bloomberg's got it, but the easiest way to do it is via barchart.com and then go to commitment of traders report and uh, disaggregated um, report. And that will show you uh, the contract size in each week from the CFTC. Um, and um, it will show you, you know, how much they've increased or decreased their positions by but, week so on week. Basically, this will be broad exposures through futures contracts. Yeah, exactly. Um, and you can see the open interest and that kind of thing as well. Um, but really, it gives you a really, really good long term view if you look at the commitment to traders reports, because obviously, you know, there's uh, there's only two specific drivers of the market and that's commercials and non-commercial speculators. Um, and uh, I mean, if you can if you can discern a long term view from that and trade around it. You know, you're pretty much you're pretty much there. So what, what, um, so what you're basically saying, just for the benefit of the listeners, is that when the market, it, there's one very consistent area of technical and market analysis that that is called contrary opinion theory, and that's when everybody is too much on one side of the boat. It means that you're likely to see a move to the other side, and so the commitment of traders report will tell you how the positioning of the market stands at any one time. And when you get a very extreme position, um, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get an immediate return because you can have a position where it's extreme for a long time. But normally those those moves are corrected. And when they are corrected, it can be quite a large move depending on how extreme that extreme position is. So you're, you're using it as a contrary or an against position. Um, and I always thought you had to pay for the um, commitment of traders report. So I, I'm, I'm intrigued that it's uh, it's now free and available at that source. Yeah, I think um, I think it comes out um, on this source a few days later. It doesn't come out on the Tuesday. Ah. So I think the Tuesday, the Tuesday one's um, the one that you have to possibly pay for. Um, I know I can get it on obviously on on, on Bloomberg on the on the Tuesday, but um, yeah, I think um, I think this one comes out on the Friday. That's when it's updated. Um, but really, you know, an event isn't going to occur on a, on that longer time frame where you're going to cause that. Well, you're going to see that significant a whip back or yeah. whatever in in you know three days. So, um, to be fair, I think it's it's negligible. What what is your opinion of of the U.S. markets here? Um, I mean, they're pretty thin. I think um, you know the the techs are just holding them up at the moment. Um, if we look at BKX, which is the bank index, um, that is coming off the 2007, 2008 high pretty strongly. Um, and it doesn't look like it wants to breach it again. Um, I think we saw earlier last week that Goldman had its longest bear run in, I think, ever on record. It was like 10 days. Stock went straight down. Wow. Um, so we can, we can see that the financials are getting hit quite heavily as well. And obviously, that's down to... Well, prop, well, in my, I say obviously, in my opinion, it's down to them looking forward at um, obviously the the rate hikes going up, um, and um, the deliquefying of the balance sheet, which is going to have an effect on them. Where credit, consumer credit over in the US is so stretched, interest rates go up. Are they going to be able to lend any more to people? I don't know. I don't know. So they're not really going to be able to make a return, are they? Um, and they can't really make a return from trading anymore because of the Volcker rule. So, you know, um, yeah. I think that's possibly one of the reasons why. But it's an interesting chart looking at BKX um, because we are right at the 2007-2008 high and rejected it with a triple top. 
if you look at the um, if you look at the individual bank stocks within the the UK, um, they haven't really recovered at all, or not 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 back to you know pre two thousand and seven levels, and so. My argument for all of this was how can you have a recovery until the banks actually recover themselves? So, um, sorry, Tim, I, I just cut in there yeah, slightly. All, 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 I, all I was going to say is, you know, we've had um, we had uh, John Hearn, the economist John Hearn, on um, about probably about six to eight weeks ago. And one thing he said, which I thought was a sort of blinding, sort of blinding statement of clarity was if interest rates are going up, risk assets are going to go down. And it was like, mm. <laughs> end of story. So, yeah. you know, it, 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 there's a kind of, there seems to be like a kind of a, a slight lag here. In, in a much bigger context, you could argue that the political stuff that we're now experiencing is a long lagged response to the crisis as well. That, that, that Brexit, the, the election of Trump, the, arguably the rise of some of the more sort of strong man style politicians dotting around the world. These are all in responses, but it's taken a lot. It's been a real slow burner. Yeah, no, I'd agree. Um, I think, um, yeah, as you say, with the strongman politicians, it's definitely um, a, 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 I guess populism is the, is the cause of, um, it's the outcome, sorry, of uh, the economic distress that we faced. And that economic distress, as we said previously, has been from the financial crisis and the policies following um, so yeah, no, I, I agree definitely. So I, so I think in a sense, what's happening here is if you distort the markets or, or interfere with the markets to such an extent as we've had, um, yeah, to, to use another recent, uh, guest we had on, it was Ronnie Sturfley, who's, who's a kind of Uber Austrian, uh, and a gold, gold, um, gold investor, gold specialist. And I said, well, do you think the market in gold is rigged? And his response was the market and everything's being rigged. So <laughs> yeah, there's, no, no, exactly. there's no need to single out gold because everything's, you know, everything's being sort of stretched and sort of stretched to, to, to breaking point. But uh, what I'm suggesting is if you allow that to happen in financial markets, then a, a, a public voter backlash is the only is the only safety valve left. If you can't express a view in a market context, the only way you can express a view is is, is at the is at the polling booth. Oh yeah, no, most definitely, I agree, and I think um, as well, quite quite a, uh, a parallel that I think we're we're moving into is one with Japan. Um, they've had the same policies that we're going through now, and um, in no, they, terms... were, they just they just got there twenty years before the rest of exactly. us. Exactly. Yeah, and in ter in terms of you know, Japan's quite a closed border policy um, country, for example. They're quite traditional still. Um, they probably always have been. That's that's kind of a. a more of a cultural thing, but I can see Europe and and uh, the UK and the US turning the same way in terms of being very protectionist, um, very um, closed towards the outside world. Not in terms of you know um, kind of racism or anything like that, but more you know you stay over there, we'll stay over here because we like it how it is, nice and stable now. You know, we've had we've had our rubbish that we've had, and we've had we're going to go through loads of deflation now, and an increase in um, an increase in 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 uh, average age and um, lower birth rates and that kind of thing, which is what we're experiencing now as well. It's a very anti-globalization development, isn't it? Really, it is. No, definitely. I think um, the the bigger picture is that the globalization thing hasn't really worked out that that well as much as we 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 say it has. Um, which um, which is a shame. 
Yeah, I think that the, the these things go in trends, albeit many decade long trends. And I think the 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 EU project in trying to bring the currencies together was, for me, the the, the kind of pinnacle of all of this and and showing how you could only do that if you'd had many decades of of prosperity you know i think there's very um important signs that there's been an excess of of um people investing in certain products because they're getting absolutely nothing on their bank deposits so they may as well yes it's it's a sheer misallocation of capital and um it, it happens all the time you know it happened in a 1998 with the um the asian crisis happened at the dot-com bubble and it will keep happening um until you know we stop getting these debt-based expansions from from the central banks um they're the ones who are distorting the markets and ultimately you know and um i think they're the ones that should that should bear the cost uh, especially well the decision makers at least because i, I truly truly think that um there's no political party that can cause you real economic hardship. All economic hardship has stemmed from the misallocation of capital, the distortion of markets. And, um, you know, for the everyday person, that distortion of markets lies on the, the roof over their head. You know, the cost of simply having somewhere to sleep, um, which is disgraceful in this day and age that is caused by the financial types, really. And uh, I think that's where the distrust comes from. I think the problem also with politics has always been that, that that it's only a short-term tenure. So you can cause all sorts of havoc and then just walk away from it. And it's it's like, you know, having a revolving chairman or chief executive of a company who just does things for their own short-term gains. At least the Japanese had the idea that if you are managing a company, you stay there through thick and thin to sort it out. Of course, that can cause uh, other, other problems. And you ritually disembowel yourself if it goes wrong. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, right, yeah. exactly. So, um, so that's that's the inherent problem of politics, which is personally why I try not to get involved with politics too much, um, because it's such a comes and goes, doesn't it? It's it's just sort of, there are just waves of of people who come in. Everyone gets very excited and or angry or whatever about it, and then then they move on to the next person and the next person and 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 the bank of england are just acting there just behind the scenes with no one really uh, having any focus on them when we're, they're the ones pulling all the strings well ultimately the the ability to set interest rates is the most powerful thing you can have the oh, most, powerful, most powerful control you can have in in any I market mean, I mean, even look at quantitative easing. That's government debt cancelling, essentially, when we think about it. Um, and that's one reason why I think that um, the, the Treasury and uh, the Bank of England are in cahoots. If you keep, keep the cost of debt lower, they can pay off easier. Yeah, and I guess there's no sort of political... There's no way of the man on the street making any changes there, is there? Well, it's exactly. Not, yeah. exactly. The, the, the Bank of England are appointed by the Treasury. Yeah. Well, the MPC, the MPC, sorry, appointed by the Treasury. Um, if you think about when we had to go through QE, we had to go to the Treasury to ask if we could do it. You know, so there's no there's no central bank independence. Um, I don't think there ever has been. It's, it's a massive um, it's a massive lie, actually. Um, and I think I honestly think that the Bank of England should be held to account the same as politicians should be. Um, it's just a shame that people don't understand monetary policy more. I think it was uh, was it Henry Ford that said um, if people. I think it was if people understood, 
if the everyday man understood monetary policy, there'll be a revolution tomorrow. Yeah, that's right. I've heard that. Tim, you're always good one for quotes, aren't you? Yeah, it's, 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 yeah if, they, if they understood how the, how the banking system worked, there'd be a revolution first thing in the morning. That's the one, yeah. So it's, um, it's yeah, well, that's just my opinion on the central so my, banks. So my, and... so my question then is, if we, we, we we're all kind of acknowledging the problem, how do we resolve the problem? Well, I think we briefly spoke about this when we went for, um, when we went for lunch. I think you asked me about it. Now, um, there's something that I, I uh, look look at called uh, Georgism and it's basically um, from the uh, economist and sociologist Henry Henry George and he advocates for a single tax now a single tax would mean that you basically tax the value of land but you get rid of taxes on labor and capital now what's the biggest um, what's the biggest reason as to why the the, um, the central banks pump money really it's, it's it's mortgages and and land growth that's that's really why it is and that creates the biggest distortions um now because land is fixed in supply you know if you tax it you can't you can't avoid it it's totally unavoidable um and um it stops the speculation which also prevents you know the um the the debt-based expansion that i was talking about from from central banks but also because you have the because you have capital and um, labor being untaxed, it means that all productive activities will be 100% productive rather than, um, you know, um, taking a 40% or 50% um, tax on your, on your wages. Whereas land speculation is totally unproductive because you're not actually adding anything. You're just waiting for others to pile into the same area so that the price rises and then eventually what happens when, you know, everyone bails out, you get a crash, you get a housing market crash. Whereas if you have a tax on the um, unimproved value of land, it means that people are going to only use that land for productive use. And it means that they're not going to be able to speculate because, you know, it make it null and void, um, which a lot of people will dislike. But I like the meritocracy part of it where you go to work, you work as hard as possible, you do the right things, um, you use your investments for good, and you don't pay any tax on any of that. Whereas sitting on a piece of land or a house, you know, you know it's, uh, it's a boring investment anyway. <laughs> you know it's always going to go up. So the how system do is... That, how, do you, how do you get that past the landowning interests, though? Ooh, that, you I mean, don't... People like Donald Trump <laughs> are going to have something to say about taxing land. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, this is the problem. Um, you, you can't. And uh, I don't think it's viable in the current um, in the current day. But I think over the next maybe half a century, it, it just should become more and more popular because well, I once, think we get, once we get the next reset. Yeah. Once we get the more uh, once we get the next uh, Schumpeterian bit of creative destruction, that's what um, that's what I think we might have to start advocating more and more for. Um because I just feel like it's 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 ridiculous that people just sit on sit on housing just waiting for it to appreciate. If you think about it, um, and it's probably one of the largest causes of inequality, um, and it's all central bank generated as well with low interest rates, QE, etc. It's all misallocation of capital, and um, it's just easy to plunk your money in a house. If um, the listeners wanted to get more information about Henry George, was, is there a book or some links that you could you could send us so we could share it with them or? Yeah, so there's a book that you wrote called Progress and Poverty, okay. um, which is a really, really fantastic book. I'm reading the um, the abridged version at the moment just so I can get my, my head around it because uh, the original one can be kind of wordy for no real reason. 
So it's written in the 1800s, I believe. Fantastic. Um, but, but the abridged version is like a more modern day style um, version. But that's the best. That's the best. Uh, the best kind of way to get a grasp of his his ideas. Um, uh, there's also there's also if you just Google Georgism, there's loads of different uh, links as well on Google that you can you can find more out about it. Fantastic. That's what, have you have you read? Um, just to put you on the spot, have you read Tim Price's "Investing Through the Looking Glass" things? We're talking about media picks. You know what? I haven't yet. Oh, I'm gonna, have um, you got I, it, I'm, David? David, I'm going to buy it. I, gonna, I, I don't know what to say. <laughs> I'm so dis- I'm so disappointed. Hang I'm going to buy a co- I'm going to buy a copy now when I get off the phone. Tim, Tim, I thought we were supposed to vet people who came on. What's, I know. What's, what's I know. I don't know how he got. I don't know how he made it through security. <laughs> I got my cat suit on, mate. <laughs> Fantastic. Speaking of speaking of speaking of cat suits, what is Curious Cat? Oh, is that your it Twitter is, handle or no, uh, no? It's an anon- it's anon- it's a uh, it's an anonymous um, question asking thing where I get obtuse amounts of hate. <laughs> <laughs> you, and, sorry, uh, you're gonna have to explain it. I don't, I don't get that. Sorry. So you link it to your Twitter account, and okay. then uh, people click on it, ask an anonymous question, and um, you answer it. But uh, oh, wow. some of the stuff some of the stuff that I get is. Uh, is is uh pretty that's out there. pretty nice yeah i enjoy it though keep it coming yeah it's um <laughs> yeah, it's interesting so uh how do you know it's not a bot or something i suppose you don't do you if it's anonymous well uh, you can tell by the kind of questions that you get asked oh really <laughs> let's, just keep, let's oh. just keep it that way okay okay very interesting well look um on that note i think we should go to media pick that we think is either really really good or really really bad and it could be right. anything. It doesn't have to be financial related. It could be your favorite film, your favorite book, um, something you've seen recently, something that's old. It doesn't have to be current. While you're having a think, we'll go to Tim to give his media pick. Um, I'm I'm assuming you've got one, Tim. Hopefully, I've got I've got I'm I'm going to really really overdose. I've got three. Oh I, my god! I watched. I I don't know why I missed this first time around, but either way, I watched The Town, which is a Ben Affleck. Uh, heist case movie um, with um, Ben Affleck. He, he he wrote and directed it, uh, and also starred in it. And it's also got Rebecca Hall and John Hamm. Now, I, I, for some reason, because that was released in 2010, but I've only just only just caught it on. It's probably Sky Movies. That that's excellent. And then I, I was very sad to hear. Um, I think this has happened just this weekend. There's um, an elderly uh, Japanese actress called Kirin Kiki. Uh, who's just died, sadly, but she she's utterly charming, and she was in a really lovely film I saw a while back called Sweet Bean. And oh Sweet yes, Bean, you mentioned that Sweet Bean. I think I may have may have, may have given a, a plug to before, but yeah. Sweet Bean could not be more Japanese and charming. It's about a uh, a guy who runs a pancake stall, and this little old lady comes up and says, "I've I've got a great great recipe for making a bean curd or whatever it is." And it, it, it's just a charming, so you have to watch it. But say, sadly, this 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 lady has just died, which is oh. very very sad. But uh, but I'd recommend Sweet Sweet Bean because it's an absolutely charming uh, film. And the last thing I was going to mention, and uh, I I don't quite know how this has happened, but I, I, I happened to be watching uh, Terminator Two, fantastic uh, film during during the week, and I, I forget when it came out, but I think it came out in like '91, so it's a long a long time ago. But the version I saw is some form of director's cut because it has about 15 minutes of extra footage that I've never seen in any other version of the film. And it wasn't 
it wasn't um, publicized as being like a special edition, but it was it, it had sequences involving uh, Michael Bean, for example, who's in the first film, but doesn't make it into the second. But he, he's brought back all of the scenes that they've they've kept in uh, add no value. So they were, the studio was right to get rid of them. But it's just a funny little thing. I, I, I've been watching this film on on and off for getting on for 30 years. But this is the first time I've seen this extra version with with hidden hidden bits in. I was wondering whether anyone else had seen it. I, yeah, I'm going to have to check it out, actually. I, I have to admit, I, I bought some um, Blu-rays a, a while back. I've got the, the Terminator set, you know, and I've got, I've got to watch it. It must have the, the extended cuts on it. So I'll, I'll check that out because they're the sort of films that you just go, oh, my God, it's so good. I've got to watch it at some point. You never get around to it. So that's, that's given me the... James, James Cameron does have a reputation for doing this because if anyone's seen it, the, the director's cut of Aliens, which I think is one of the best films ever made, yeah. also has this extra stuff in that doesn't actually add anything to the film at all. Yeah, it, 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 it just bogs it down. So, again, the studios do tend to get it right. They do sort of hack out, edit out the, the, the superfluous stuff. So for me, uh, my pick is the, I think I may have mentioned it before, but we're into the second season of The Ozark, which if you like Breaking mm. Bad, which everybody loves, um, and Better Call Saul, which is fantastic. And so that just goes without saying that those are just, if you haven't watched those, then you've got to go out and watch them straight away. But The Ozark is uh, is very good. It's with Laura Linney and Jason Bateman, and very, very well written, very well directed. Actually, I think some of it's been directed by Jason Bateman himself, but just compelling stuff. So I'm, I'm really enjoying that. So David, got something for us at all? Well, um, the one thing I was going to say, one's, one's financial and one's not. Yeah, um, great. Perfect. Ray, uh, Ray Dalio has released his principles out as a 10-part series on uh, YouTube. Oh, really? Yeah, it's probably one of the best things I've watched in a very, very long time. Fantastic. Um, I think they're they're half an hour long episodes, and it's like a cartoon, but it's really fantastically done. And um, yeah, I, I definitely recommend giving giving that a watch over the next week or two. Fantastic. Um, and the second film is Spotlight. It's pretty. Um, oh it's yeah. Pretty unheard of, and it's a bit of a somber, uh, somber topic. But yeah. possibly one of the best films that I've seen in terms of acting and uh, in terms of pretty much everything in it. Really, fantastic! fantastic. I, really, I've, really good. I've I've heard of it and I've seen the material and I've I've wanted to watch it and I've sort of backed away from it because it's like it looked like a difficult watch to me. But now you said that, I'll I'll definitely I'll definitely check it out. Yeah, no, fantastic film too. By the way, I I think I don't. Tim and I absolutely love the film A Quiet Place, and I I think Emily Blunt should win an Oscar for for her performance in that. I think she she was just absolutely amazing. It's an amazing Gosh. film, but I think she her performance was just so so good. So I'm I'm hoping she. It, it's very rare that Oscar performances go to a horror film, so it's so unlikely. But I'm. I'm actually going to look out there and see if there's a price on it because I want to put I want to put some money on it happening. I think she's she, she was just brilliant. If you haven't watched it, give give that a, give that a spin. It's very well worth it. Will do. I haven't seen that actually. Yeah. Cool. Well, look, David, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on, and uh, you know, thank you for your time. Thank you for your thoughts. And uh, Tim, as always, it's always a pleasure. I think you're going to be away next week, aren't you, Tim? You're, you're this going is to... correct. This is correct. So our next, our next, uh, our next podcast is scheduled for the thirtieth, so right for the end of the month. Right. Okay. So 
just once again thank you for listening thanks for all your feedback and your support we really do appreciate it have a fantastic week and we will speak to you next time cheers uh, cheers paul thanks a lot bye this podcast is for entertainment purposes only please do your own research or contact a professional advisor